I was thinking to myself, 5-MEO, what? I mean, like, never heard of it, right? The main point was they were just all over the top of what it had done for them. They had tried everything up to this point uh, and nothing worked. So, so that was my introduction. When we found that data, I did some comparisons with other studies that use the same pain paradigm. What I noticed, if you compare the outcomes of the analgesic effect, it's actually comparable to some of the classic opioids that are currently being used to treat pain. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Hello, I'm Troy Farah, and you're listening to Narcotica. As a journalist, I've been covering psychedelics since about 2015, also known as the Before Times. Back then, it was pretty easy reporting on this beat. I remember when there was just a few weekly news items, a study here or there, some policy changes, but that was about it. These days, it's a full-time job trying to keep up with all the psychedelics news. Last year, in 2020, I had to make a choice. Stop reading COVID-19 news all the time or stop reading drug news all the time. I didn't have the capacity for both, and I chose to follow drugs. One recent tally I heard was that there are now more than 300 startups trying to develop entheogenic substances or related drugs into valuable pharmaceuticals. It's why I've been saying for a while now that it's less of a psychedelic renaissance and more of a psychedelic gold rush. Psychedelics probably really are these promising substances that can ease a lot of suffering and bring healing to people who have run out of options. I say probably because while the data on psychedelics is pretty strong, there still needs to be a lot of room for skepticism. After all, these drugs aren't for everyone, and they can't treat everything. And these days, there isn't an ailment some Silicon Valley-esque startup is trying to treat with psychedelics. Of course, you have depression, anxiety, addiction, PTSD, and fear of death for the terminally ill. There's some good data on treating all of that, but some of the more obscure treatments include anorexia and eating disorders, sexual dysfunction, dementia, and even rare conditions like Fragile X Syndrome. Psychedelics are amazing drugs. They've definitely brought me a lot of personal growth and reframing of trauma, but come on, they're not a panacea. I'm not saying this research isn't worth investigating, but how do you determine what's just hype and what the actual potential of psilocybin, LSD, DMT, etc. is? So I was pretty skeptical when I first heard of psychedelics being used to treat physical pain. Yet while the research is very young, there is some fascinating evidence that psychedelics may help with chronic pain, fibromyalgia, cluster headaches, and even phantom limb pain. And what's interesting is so many different research institutions and corporations are exploring this question. It's not exactly a fringe topic. I recently reported on this phenomenon for Scientific American. You can find a link to read the article in the show notes. The question, whether psychedelics can really help with pain, doesn't have an answer yet, but a lot of people are asking it, and so far, the results are fascinating. What follows are two interviews I did for that story that did not make it into the final cut. Sometimes when reporting, I cover so much that I can't include everything, and, well, I didn't want to leave these two conversations out, so I'm sharing them on Narcotica, only lightly edited. They weren't originally intended for a podcast, so sorry in advance if anything sounds a little off. The first is a conversation with Greg McKee, CEO of Trip Therapeutics, a California-based startup that is exploring chronic pain relief using psilocybin and another psilocybin-based drug with an undisclosed formulation that is obliquely called TRP-8803. The company has partnered with the University of Michigan and the University of Wisconsin-Madison to study how these drugs might treat fibromyalgia. And Trip 
spelt T-R-Y-P, has added leading psychedelic researcher Robin Carhart Harris to its scientific advisory board, where he will play a, quote, critical role in clinical trial design. If you know the name Robin Carhart Harris, he's a pretty big deal in psychedelic research. The second interview is with Dr. Johannes Ramakers of Maastricht University, who says he is developing another pain study to look at psychedelics and fibromyalgia. He was a lead author of a very interesting study published in 2020 in the Journal of Psychopharmacology that found that, quote, low doses of LSD might constitute a novel pharmacological therapy. In the experiment, 24 healthy volunteers received single doses of 5, 10, and 20 micrograms of LSD, which is too low to have a full-blown trip, as well as placebo. They then held their hands under extremely cold water. The longer they held their hands under the cold water, the better they were determined to be able to handle their pain. This is called a cold presser test, and it's actually a pretty common way to measure pain, which is harder than you might think. Pain is a sort of abstract, subjective experience. And pain tolerance under LSD in this study was comparable to similar studies using oxycodone or morphine, which is a pretty big deal. This is some of the best data we have on the topic so far. But before we get to those two conversations, here's our one and only advertisement from Narcotica. We are an independent program that relies on listener support via Patreon. So if you want to join more than 60 people who make this show possible, please go to patreon.com slash narcotica. We have some perks like stickers, and we'll give folks a shout out on the show if you request. More stuff is coming soon, we promise. Help keep us independent. Some podcasts have ads at the beginning that seriously last 10 minutes. I feel like I'm skipping fast forward so much it's going to break my fucking thumb. We don't want to turn this into a place for car insurance and diet pills, so we just want to keep bringing you free, accurate, compassionate drug policy reporting. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook. We're most active on Twitter, but we're out there. Rate us, follow us, share us. It really does help us out. And anyway, this is super boring, I know, but it matters. So now that we're done with that, onto the show. Here's my conversation with Greg McKee, the CEO of Trip Therapeutics. Let's just start with a little bit of bio or a background on you. Uh, I kind of want to know yours. I, I can read about it online, but it's best to get it in your own words. How did you kind of enter into this space? Yeah, that, that's probably a, that's probably a more relevant question, right? Happy to walk through my background. You know, I tell you what happened for me was that I I was working on a project. I lived down in Southern California in La Jolla, just outside of San Diego, or in San Diego, technically, I guess. So, so, so down here, right? So, there's a whole bunch of uh, there's a large a service community, right? A, a whole lot of uh, men and women who are um, in the armed services, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, a yeah. bunch of, I was working with a, a group of, well, they're all men, right? Because the only men are in the Navy SEALs right now, but a bunch of former Navy SEALs and I were working on a project together. And um, unrelated to that, you know, we were hanging out, right? Having beers at night and lunches and stuff like that. And, you know, over the course of several months, I was working with them and like it, it came out that most of them had PTSD and depression. And then at further like they just like they really started to open up about what they were doing about it, and and several of them had used five meo DMT to treat their PTSD, right? Interesting. And I was I was thinking to myself, five meo what? I mean, like never heard of it, right? And they were going to Berkeley, and they were going to New Mexico, and it was all you know, like it wasn't prescribed medication. They were going to some you know back alley or something. It, it wasn't really quite clear how they were getting access, but. Like they were, yeah. they were getting access. And the main point was that they were just all over the top of what it had done for them. They had tried everything up to this point uh, and nothing worked. So, so that was my introduction, frankly. And I just was thinking to myself, wow, this is actually pretty interesting. 
but there's chemistry around that, that, you know, no one is really developing the pharmaceutical industry, which is my, most of my background, which I'll get into in a minute, but there's yet, yeah, there's a whole bunch of people who I, you know, respect or super intelligent. And these guys are swearing by it. So, so that was my introduction founder. Who's a really good friend of mine, Bill Garner, um, put a trip together a couple of years ago. He and I, uh, would typically meet at JP Morgan every year. And we've done that for like 20 years. And, and he, he and I bumped into each other at the end of last year, he mentioned, this company trip that he was working on and he was looking to expand the board. And I said, yeah, fantastic. I'd love to, because I was really interested about getting involved in chemistries that had so much history, right? Um, just knowing how long it takes to get to the FDA and so forth, all that history, the safety databases and all that around this chemistry really allow it to move very quickly into clinical development. And you skip a lot of the preclinical stages, a lot of the characterization, trying to figure out, you know, all sorts of things related to manufacturing, although there are a couple of interesting manufacturing challenges we're going through. So, you know, I, I was, was pretty excited about the idea of getting involved in the chemistry that, that I had seen firsthand through these good friends at Navy SEALs that really seem to have activity and work. And then two, I realized there's all this history, large data sets of safety and also efficacy data in, in a, a whole bunch of different academic trials, all of which you've studied, right? Like at Yale and NYU and Hopkins and other places, right? And then I realized okay. that that you know this is sort of the time and in, in talking to you know Trip a little bit and the rest of the board and the co-founder that what what you know there there's just a lot of capital around right now, a lot of interest, especially up in the Canadian market to to put capital to work you know behind these types of of um, companies. So all that seemed to be like signaling to me that great chemistry, you know. Um, Lots of good history and 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 uh, interest in in capital markets to support these companies. So all that just sort of became a big green light for me. Yeah, it's a it's a. I mean, I've been covering this for so long. I remember there was like barely any news about this stuff. Like you see a study come out once a week or something, and now it's like it's a full time job keeping up with all the changes going on, all the exciting research is coming out, all these companies coming up on the stock market, et cetera. I'm curious, though, you know, what uh, motivates you to look into pain specifically as a condition that you want to treat with these compounds? Yeah, um, it's a, a number of different reasons, right? So, you know, one of the one of the first, well, I don't know if it's the first or second, but, you know, one for sure is like, we, we want to do something different, right? There are so many companies working in in depression, PTSD, and, 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 and anxiety, right? And we just felt like, like, we can't be the 30th player or 40th player in, in that space. Like, they got that covered pretty well, right? And so we're, we're rooting on the sidelines for everyone to be successful, like for sure, like especially, you know, Compass's phase 2B data, right, that they should be announcing sometime this fall, right? They announced completion of recruitment um, in the summer. That's really critical, 230 patients. It's a huge trial. You know, like we, we hope that and expect that will be positive. Um, but we didn't want to be in another company. It's like, it just seemed like that's covered already, right? And, and then the second thing, which is, is probably even more valid, is that as we started doing our own research, into the field and started working with a number of different ac- academic collaborators, including Robin Carhart Harris, who actually I was just on the phone with this morning, you know, who's moving over to UC San Francisco, which is awesome. You know, he's already started there technically as of July 1st. Um, and, you know, talking to Dan Claw, who we just recently added to our SAB, he was at the University of Michigan. You know, Dan in particular was a big lead for us. There, there just it became apparent that that one that there was huge unmet need in a very specific category of pain uh, known as nosoplastic pain, uh, and, and that's you know that's essentially what what's now is you know being viewed as kind of the, the third 
category of, of pain. You know, there's there's obviously you know no susceptive pain, which is is ongoing inflammation and damaged tissues. There's neuropathic pain, which is caused by nerve damage, right? And then there's this third category, which is believed to be all CNS driven, right? So it's all driven by the central nervous system, right? So there's a whole bunch of different subcategories, which we can get into in a minute. But Dan is, is uh, one of the world's leading experts in the study of fibromyalgia. He's been involved in the development of all three compounds that have been approved for that specific uh, indication, right? And, you know, when you hear him talk about, you know, the efficacy of those compounds and, you know, the, the side effects, um, you know, it turns out, for example, that 30% of the patients, you know, taking these drugs end up getting addicted to, to opioids because they, they drop off therapy. 90% of people drop off therapy um, after one year, which is really horrible, right? And the percent efficacy rates are, are incredibly, you know, low, so even though, you know, Dan and his, his team, Kevin Banky and a bunch of other, pe- other people at the University of Michigan have been working in this, these fields or that field in particular, you know, they're all, they're, they're, they're saying, look, like we haven't solved the problem at all. We're just scratching the surface with these three drugs that are currently approved in Lyrica, Cymbalta and Savella. And, and then as they've been doing research, you know, Dan's looked at cannabinoids. He's looked at some other treatment paradigms. And over the years, he's kind of come to the conclusion that it's all, you know, something's going on with the, the, the brain. I don't know if you heard this yet in your kind of research, but um, one of the ways I'm, you know, we're hearing described a lot is that the brain is sort of stuck in a certain pattern, right? And it just needs to quote unquote, get unstuck, which isn't really a technical term, but um, I've heard it kicked around a few times, but um, that's kind of the view that, that you need to use some sort of chemistry that can unlock the, the neuroplasticity of the brain and help it get unstuck from, you know, learned patterns that it just, you know, repeats over and over, which aren't, you know, helpful in these particular cases. Right. And so, so he's, he's done a, he's got, he's got a huge publication on no plastic pain, which I'd be happy to send to you. And, um, and, and, you know, they, they don't really think that there's been much else they've tried in the, the cannabinoid space that works. And they think that there's, you know, a pretty strong, not not only a big opportunity, but a strong rationale that something like a psychedelic, like psilocybin, which is what we're working on, coupled with psychotherapy could be enough to really just like move patients out of that mindset that they're currently in and get them retrained in a way to effectively have a, have a different relationship with their pain and then resolve that problem. So mechanistically, right? Like everything that we're, and this is a big discussion we were having this morning with, with Robin and one of his colleagues at Imperial College was like the areas of their interest and everything revolves around that same, same mechanistic approach that somehow the brain is stuck and it can be an addictive behavior. It can be uh, an eating disorder. Uh, it can be, you know, a pain signal. Um, it can be uh, depression, obviously there's a, you know, a lot of different mood disorders. There's a lot of different things, but you know, there's a, definitely a common thread. It can be, you know, we had a long conversation about obesity, you know, for example, yeah, there's, you know, you know, all the stats on how, you know, people will take weight less drugs. And then as soon as they get off the drugs, um, or it, even if they, you know, get to kind of a maintenance dose, the weight doesn't stay off because they, they just can't like, they don't mentally get in the right state of, of having the right relationship with, with weight in their body and they just start eating, yeah. you know, again, right. It's a mental thing. It's not just a physical, you know, there's a huge mental element in, in any case. Yeah. yeah. And right? I, I want to talk to you also about, um, you know, your eating disorder study, but, uh, but to back to up to pain a little bit, um, you know, are, I guess I want to talk a little bit more about how you envision this being administered. Cause you talked a little bit about psychotherapy 
Yes. But, I mean, yeah. are we even talking a micro dose versus a macro dose? Is this sort of a long-term thing or is this like a, you know, you take it? Yeah. Warm? Yeah. Let, let me, let me mention a couple things, right? So, so sure, in, sure. In, in chronic pain, no plastic pain, there, there's a massive field, right? In terms of the, the different subcategories. So fibromyalgia is one. We're looking at that. We're looking at, you know, phantom limb pain is probably the, the easiest one you can wrap your head around. At least for me, that was the case, right? Which is yeah. individuals had an amputation, there's, there's no nerve damage, right? So they, they clearly don't have neuropathic pain. There's no inflammation because there's no limb there, right? So they don't have um, no susceptive pain, but they've got pain in their limb, right? They've got these shooting pains and burning sensations in their arm or leg that's been amputated, right? So it's obviously, it's, it's purely mental. Um, so, so phantom limb pain is another one. We're looking at what's known as complex regional pain syndrome, which is sort of akin to fibromyalgia, but typically it's caused by a surgical intervention or some other, you know, injury often. Um, but it ends up being just sort of this ongoing pain. Um, there's probably a list of um seven or eight different subcategories of uh plastic or chronic pain, TMJ, vertigo, um, spasticity, spinal cord injuries, functional abdominal pain, IBS has also been implicated, irritable bowel syndrome, right? So a bunch of different subcategories. And then in terms of like delivery, so so really interesting when you dive into it, right? So for sure, like a lot of companies were thinking about coupling the therapeutic element, right? Therapeutic drug plus psychotherapy, right? And there's a, there's a bunch of interesting nuances in the psychotherapy. So there's, there's pre-treatment to essentially get patients ready for the experience. There's monitoring when they're being dosed drug. And then there's what are called integration sessions afterwards where the brain essentially, you know, gets retrained. And just as a side note, I mean, I've had a bunch of conversations with psychotherapists and they're really frustrated on just how darn long it takes for them to be effective with patients, right? Like their quote unquote talk therapy is a lot of them like to characterize it. Just, it just, just takes too long. It's, it takes too, too many sessions. So they're kind of itching. At least I'm beginning to come, become, come to the conclusion that they're really they're chomping at the bit to find some way to get uh, their patients' brains a little bit more malleable and receptive to their, their psychotherapy, right? So there'll be psychotherapy. We are specifically going to come up with a, a regimen that's a little bit unique uh, on an indication basis, meaning you know the, the patients in eating disorders are going to be treated slightly different than the patients with fibromyalgia in that you know, their condition's a little bit different and, and what the patient has got the, the, the challenging relationship with is, is unique. So how the psychotherapist, you know, kind of pre-treats them and how they monitor probably is similar, but what they do in the integration sessions will be slightly different. We just completed our first train sessions of a dozen psychotherapists a few weeks back at the university of Florida for our eating disorders trial. So there's a very unique psychotherapy manual as we're calling it uh, for each one of these studies. Our, our drug for these studies right now is uh, an off-the-shelf oral tablet, 25 milligram. Um, in most of the studies, it's we're using um, a weight-based dosing in our eating disorders study since the patients are a little bit heavier. Then that's essentially just to answer the, it's an exploratory study to answer the basic question, does psilocybin work in these therapeutic areas? And then answer a bunch of ancillary questions, exploratory questions around Secondary endpoints, there's a whole bunch of other questionnaires that we're raising to the surface. There's a couple of different biomarkers that we're looking at. We're looking at functional MRI. We're looking at EEG. 
Um, and we're trying to get a better sense of what's actually happening to the brain. And we're correlating certain brain activity with dosing. We're also correlating that to blood levels um, um, as well, just to get a you know baseline. Um, so that's what we're doing the two ways, but in parallel, we are working on a novel formulation and a, that will use a novel route of administration. So, so right now we see a couple of the big problems being that, that one, when, when people go on a trip, it's highly inconsistent. So, and it can sometimes not happen at all, or it will go out, it'll last for like 10 or 12 hours, which is, is really a, a problem, right? Like yeah. to have a psychotherapist, right? Like who wants to, like, you can't, you can't schedule around that and, and the psychotherapist, you know, can't you know, trash an entire day. Um, when it can probably be dealt with um, in a much more tight time frame. Uh, the, the second thing is that that if patients have a bad trip, there's there's not much to do. Uh, you know, you can give them antidote, but it's it's a little questionable. You know, you're giving them a second drug. There can be re- reactions to that, uh, and so forth. So um, we're not um, we're not microdosing. Although I was also talking to Robin and his colleague David Eritoy about that again today because I was kind of curious. They're doing a little bit of a study. But our view is that microdosing doesn't work. And then right now the data doesn't support that. But look, if if someone figures out how to make microdosing work, then God bless them. And like, we're all for that, right? Like, fantastic. But our view right now is, is that you're going to need to get dosed with a pretty, uh, I don't know if I'd call it a high dose, but a pretty, pretty significant dose of drug. You know, and you can imagine, right, Troy, that you can, you know, we, we, we typically, you know, pharma industry serves up drugs in, in pill form typically, but you know, biologics, you know, are uh, sometimes injected, you know, vaccines are injected, of, of course, you know, intramuscularly or subcutaneously, you can, you know, you know, of all the buccal formulations that the, you know, either in the side of the lip or under the tongue, sublingual formulations, um, IV, of course, is another way to, you know, get drugs to the body. Um, there's in the nasal inhalation, there's, um, just full on, in, you know, drugs that hit the, the lung directly, um, so there's a, b- a bunch of different ways that you can deliver drugs to the human body. We, we just think that, that, that out of that, there's, and sorry, they got to be so cryptic, but we, we still need to generate some data to, to secure our IP position. Um, but we, we think that, that of that kind of set of different ways, so all the way from microdosing to, you know, from tablets to IV to buccal to sub-Q, IM, um, nasal, um, and then just inhalation in general, that out of that, there's a couple different ways that are, are really interesting in that they can likely, you know, create a much more consistent experience and there can be mechanisms um, to shut down the experience in, in a lot shorter period of time, which would give it a, bit, a better safety profile. So we're looking at, at, at one of those routes in particular as our primary, you know, kind of uh, modality. We've got a unique formulation around that that's nearly completed. We've got a partnership with the University of Michigan and also University of, of with um, another institution in the Midwest that's going to do some preliminary studies for us. And then we've got um, some bridging studies that we'll formally put together in the next nine months that will allow us to go into phase 2B studies with that unique formulation. But it's, 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 close, it's, it's closely aligned to psilocybin. It's, it's, a, it's um, right in that family, um, but a little bit unique chemistry and, and a very unique formulation and a unique root administration. So our ultimate product is going to be the combination of drug plus psychotherapy, but in, the drug will be in a unique format. Okay, so sorry, cool. Sorry, here for. Yeah, that's, that's quite a bit, but sorry about that. Yeah. No, that's great. I mean, that answers so many of my questions. And I, I know you can't really talk about what the chemical is. Specifically, I think we're speaking about uh, TRP-8802. 
Yeah, let me, let me clarify. So 8802, and, and happy to also send you our deck. You can grab it off our website, but I can also email it to you. Um, there's, there's, there's also a really good article um, that we'll get across to you that, that um, Joel Castellano from UC San Diego wrote on a list of studies. Um, he did a nice little s- survey in terms of studies that were done in the past around chronic pain, right? So there's, there's um, most of them are in phantom limb, which is kind of an area of their expertise at UCSD. There's a couple studies that were done um, by this guy by the name of Kutch back in like 67 and a group um, cast and Collins in 64. They were actually looking at cancer and ischemic and neuropathic pain. Um, and then um, cluster headaches. There was a series of studies like in 2010, uh, 2006, 2015. I'll, I'll send this to you so you can kind of look at this table. But there's a, a handful of studies essentially in phantom limb, in cancer pain, and cluster headaches. So call it those three areas, which he kind of calls uh, you know the, the the baseline. And there were there were some in LSD. There were a lot in still LSD, some in psilocybin. Basically, those two chemistries. Um, there's one other, yeah, one slightly different variant of LSD, two bromo LSD, but um, most yeah, of them are LSD. Yeah, psilocybin. So, you know, he's got a, a kind of a good little baseline there in terms of other, you know, historical data that's been put together in this space to, to, to show some, some outcomes. The 8802 is just, is, is off the shelf oral psilocybin that is, is manufactured by USONA Foundation <clears throat> that, that, that we and a whole bunch of academics are using to run these early phase 2A studies. And okay. then 8803 is our novel formulation that will be used in our novel root administration. So that's what that is. That's the difference between those two. Okay. Um, we may begin to create some other labels depending on what happens with our formulation on 8803, but right now there's just the two. 8802 is to get us going in clinic. 8803 is is our proprietary you know, version of psilocybin. Okay. Yeah. Houston is great. Um, so you can't really tell me if... I mean, if it's like some the specific chemical that 8803 is, you're worried about patents or anything like that. So, you know, I, I know there's the patent space in psychedelics is uh, it's heating up a lot. You know, people are, you know, staking out territory more and more. And it's it's really interesting to watch. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a great um, space. to Keep an eye on. Right. And, and like love to like whatever you write on this. I want to like know about it. Like whatever you find out would be super helpful. Um, we've, we, we feel really comfortable about what's happening and not, not too concerned about what other people, you know, have, I, we've hired Morrison Forrester as our IP counsel, Jim Mullen, who heads up IP work for them. who's based down here in Southern California, who leads, leads their practices is our head IP guy. We've got a couple other people in a shop, one up in the Bay area that we're working with, and also some other outside counsel that we're working with on, on the whole IP portfolio. We, we actually, a couple of weeks back, <clears throat> did a full run-through um, of Compass's, you know, for patents. And look, nothing, nothing against Compass, right? Like, like, we want them to be really successful. We know that they're kind of the, the leader in the field right now with their four patents that have been issued. But if you look at those, those patents, three of the four of them are very niche very focused patents on their specific formulation. So they've effectively patented their formulation and there's there's like no block, blocking patent whatsoever, right? I mean, their their patent is, is very specific around the, the purity, around you know their manufacturing process, and you know things as as um, tightly defined as the refraction um, parameters 
of, of the chemistry, right? Which is a typical way that you kind of look at how the salts and core formers wrap around a chemistry is you shine light on it and, and, it, and it bounces off in certain angles. And, and that's sort of the, one of the ways that you determine that molecule is unique, right? It's essentially like saying like I patented a chair, right? And it happens to be a five-legged chair and it's got a certain type of cushion, a certain type of back, and it's unique for sure, but like it's a chair, right? And you can get around that if you have a four-legged chair or a three-legged yeah. you know, chair, right? It's, it's, it's the kind of that level of patenting which again, no knock on them, right? I mean, they did, they're doing everything they can to protect their chemistry, their molecule. Um, and they're doing a great job on all that, but like, it's not blocking at all. So, so no, we're not, we're not worried. Um, we also have, we've already filed uh, one provisional back in March of 2021. We've got another provisional that we're going to be filing in the next couple of months. Yeah. Um, and then we've got a very specific um, process in place and set of steps that we've lined up to convert both those provisional patents into PCT filings in the coming uh, six to 12 months, right? You've, you've got obviously 12 months to convert provisional patents to PCT filings, right? Otherwise you lose those priority dates on the provisional patents. So we're you know, lining up our experiments in a way that we can generate the right kind of data. Um, and we're, you know, we're, we're going broad, you know, around the therapeutic areas that we're looking at. We're going broad around our particular you know, formulation. Um, one of the things that, you know, we're looking at is, is that, you know, d- delivery is really important. I don't know if this, this is a little side note, but I don't know if I, I just learned the other, on, over the weekend that there's only one, one lipid difference between the Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine. I didn't realize that that was, that was like that little of a difference between those two vaccines are both MNRI, MNRAI, right? They're, they're, they're essentially the, the reason that that vaccine works, the COVID vaccine works is that they had to encapsulate it in the right set of lipids to, to essentially keep the body from destroying the, the, DNA, the DNA construct, the MNRA construct, because it's just like so fragile. And they use four lipids. Um, and the only difference is one of those four lipids. And it's like, wow, like <laughs> that was really surprising to me, especially given like I have a whole bunch of friends in the healthcare system that all got the Pfizer vaccine and they all got sick on their second dose. I had the Moderna and all my friends got Moderna and none of us had any problem. Right. And it was like, so these little, these little nuances make a big, big difference. So the delivery of psilocybin is, is think, we think it's really interesting and we know that, and, and it's, it's well known that there's, there's, you know, that it's a pro drug and there's a lot of other elements, you know, to it. So we think there's a lot to be done around that particular chemistry as well yeah. as how it gets formulated. So yeah, I can say that much. And then, and on top of that, then the root administration, and I can also say that stability of the specific derivative that we're looking at is also historically been a challenge, but we've navigated around that. So we're pretty excited about that as well. Yeah, this is all really interesting because there are so many tiny nuances to this biochemistry stuff, uh, which... (laughs) Right? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the the classic examples is uh, S-ketamine, you know, with Johnson & Johnson. And there's a lot of debate over that. I'm not an expert. I can't really say which way it is. If, if S-ketamine is better than racemic ketamine or R-ketamine, um, you know. So, I mean, I guess that's my question is, you know, whatever your compound 8803 is, like, let's say it's 4-ACO-DMT. It's a different prodrug that breaks down into psilocin. You know, what what makes you think it would be more effective for pain? Is is there something there that you – or are you just trying to figure that out still? Yeah, I mean – 
Um, I, I ask this question a lot, right? Like, and I asked, I asked David Eritoy today, Robin's colleague at Imperial and Robin, Robin was on the call. It's like, guys, like, help me out again. Like, I know I've asked this a bunch of times. I ask everybody in the field, like, what's the difference between LSD, DMT, 5-MAO DMT, like S-ketamine, like you're saying, right? And like all this stuff, you know, I, I think that, that right now, like nobody really knows. I think it's the bottom line. It's, it's like, there's just, there's just not, they're, they're, I mean, nobody, nobody, Troy can t- say to any of us definitively, they know because no one's done the head to head studies in these indications. I think, I, I think it'll probably get teased out over time. And my sense is that in some way it, it, it may not exactly matter. I, I think that there's just going to be, there's a whole bunch of work that's going to get done and a bunch of different chemistries, everyone's going to sort of say they think that they've got the answer. Everyone's going to try. And then if it works, they're going to start moving ahead. And then I think the market's going to, going to probably kind of lose track in terms of, you know, why that chemistry, you know, why LSD versus psilocybin or psilocin or, you know, whatever. Um, and, and I think that, that over time, then maybe there'll be some other nuances that get sort of teased out. But, but nobody's like running experiments right now that are, are going to give us the right answer of like, why we're, we are, you know, and um, we are looking at psilocybin because uh, frankly, the history and because a lot of the academics are working with, you know, at the university of Florida, university of Michigan, Imperial college, two other academic institutions that we can't quite name yet, but they're both here in California and they're both part of the UC system, right? Like all these institutions like they just have so much more, you know, some of them are using other chemistries for sure, but they have so much more history and there's just been so much more work around psilocybin. Uh, and, and so that's kind of where it, it's most of the work seems to be being done for right now for, for better or worse. Um, so we don't, we, we don't really have an answer in terms of like why we think psilocybin would work better in pain versus some other psychedelic. We don't, we don't know yet. We just, we, we do know that there's the most history on, psilocybin, which gives us the most comfort going into humans. Um, and we know there's a rationale to use a psychedelic for this particular type of pain called nosoplastic pain. And, you know, the other thing you're treating is, or, or attempting to study is treating fibromyalgia. And, you know, I, I kind of expressed already my, cons- my editor's concerns about this, you know, because I guess fibromyalgia is kind of like a controversial thing. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, yeah. I saw, I saw those questions. Yeah. No, fair enough. It certainly has been controversial, right? Um, I, I would, I would say it's less controversial now in part because physicians feel like they've got, they've got, they've got a couple of different tools in their arsenal they can use, right? I mean, they've got these three drugs that, that they can prescribe to, to patients, Lyrica, Cymbalta, Savella, right? Um, there's been, you know, quite a, a, you know, there's been now decades of work in this, this space. I think that physicians, you know, now feel like it used to be sort of this catch-all type of disease, you know, category when, when patients, you know, didn't fit into any other box that kind of got, you know, dropped in the fibromyalgia uh, box. Um, but I think that now more that, 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 that indication is, is got some legitimacy and they've got tools to treat it. I think so both those things kind of help that out quite a bit, but I, you know, I, I also think that, that when you talk to, you know, the, the experts and, you know, we're like, we're not experts in fibromyalgia, you know, quite yet, but we're working really closely with, with Kevin Benke, who I mentioned before, who's at the University of Michigan, right? He'll be the the, the PI on on our study, um, and you know, he's working directly with Dan Claw. Dan is like the head honcho kind of in that in that shop, and and we've got a great body of psychotherapists, these researchers, plus anesthesiologists and other people from the University of Michigan. Um, 
you know, they, they feel like there's just, there's, there's so much, you know, like we haven't solved the problem. Like in, all three of these drugs really don't solve the problem. And, and they feel like there's a, um, a high chance that a psychedelic should really, you know, help get the brain rewired of these patients and, and be effective. So I, I would say that that stigma that was sort of around fibro has really dissipated quite a bit, at least, you know, cause that was kind of my understanding when I, you know, first kind of showed up here at the company about eight months ago, I was a little bit concerned about that. It, it also has kind of squishy endpoints, right. You know, as well, there's, there's high placebo rates. Dan will talk about, you know, he, he's mentioned that several times in our conversations, but I, I think that the medical community has kind of moved, moved beyond that. And I've, I've got a number of friends who are physicians and I've talked to them and, you know, casually, you know, mentioned that we're looking at this space and all of them are just like, yeah, please like do something like they're, they're kind of, they're, they're really frustrated. They can't find a way to solve the problem of these patients. But I, I feel like that stigma is at least in the medical community has kind of like gone away. And now like physicians have, have begun to really, you know, one, they've, you know, they've either been forced to address it or they now at least have some tools to slightly address it. Right. Um, and it's, it's, it's sort of become a little bit more mainstream. It's a, it's a massive um, indication. I mean, there's right. hundreds of thousands of patients that, you know, show up in the clinic and are diagnosed with this, that need to be treated. So it seems like it's a big, big problem, but yeah, no, I, I hear the, I, I, I hear that, but I, I think that, that maybe the markets or at least the medical community has moved. On. I don't know if the general public has. And, and that's why you think, is it still 8803 or is there a different compound they're trying to treat fibromyalgia with? Yeah. So, so, so it, it'll be the same um, in, in both cases. So, so fibro is just, we kind of view that as, as one, one of the subcategories within chronic pain or no suplastic pain. Um, it'll be, it's going to be one of the first three, right? Fibromyalgia, phantom limb, and co- complex regional pain syndrome will be our first three in, in that particular, you know, category. Okay. And it, it, it seems like you're really banking on this theory that this sort of pain has a lot to do with mental connections in the brain. So, I mean, yes, 100%, 100%. what kind of evidence do you have for that? Or are you still trying to figure that out? Um, there, there's... Um... There's, there's a good, good, yeah, no, we, we actually feel like there's a, a pretty good basis um, for that. I'll, I'll, I'll make sure that one of the other things that we sent across to you is this, this article that Dan Claw, you know, wrote on, on this new, um, it's, they, they've been trying to figure out in the pain space for a long time, what to kind of name this category of pain, but they've, I think they've all kind of come to, to conclusion to call it no subplastic pain. At least that's the, the current thinking. And there's just a really good kind of general outline in terms of like why they think that that's, that's you know the case, but there's there's been you know many different subcategories of no suppressive pain or chronic pain that you know have emerged that you know, clearly don't have some sort of of inflammation or some sort of nerve damage as being the, the primary source of the pain, right? Like there's just in the first two cases, you know, the physician can identify a certain pain and and patients will respond to the pain. There's there's quite a few drugs that that attack and, and there are that can deal with. Um, neuropathic pain, and they can deal with no susceptive pain, but there's, there's not, there's nothing right now that can deal with no subplastic pain, right? Where there's chronic, you know, pain that's related to the central nervous system. And so all these diseases kind of fall under that same umbrella. Yeah. And then the last question is about timeline, you know, that's hard to answer. I know, but uh, you know, if you, when do you think some of these results will come out or any of that kind of thing approval? I know that's pretty far away. And I think it's actually, you know, just kind of smart what you're doing. Like you're already taking on 
drugs that have a lot of a, a, a established safety profiles, so you can go right into phase two. That's the same with the uh, Razozane, which is a cool name for a drug. So can you talk to me a little bit about the timeline, even though I know that's hard to estimate? Yeah, so, so you know, we're, we're doing a lot of, of work on that internally. The, you know, so, so the, the first, first milestones, kind of first timeline is getting us, you know, into the clinic. So we've got these, these first two indications for, for binge eating disorder and hypothalamic obesity. So that's in the category of the eating disorders um, bucket. The University of Florida, we anticipate filing our IND um, sometime actually in the next couple of weeks. USONA just got back to us. They've had to file an amendment to their IND on, on a new manufacturer. They've got a new manufacturer that's... Um, it's Lonza. I think it's probably, it's, it's probably not, not, not a secret. Um, they're manufacturing, they have a new site here in the United States or a site in the United States that they just got qualified that USONA is using to manufacture API, which is great. Um, Lonza is like a legitimate, you know, CMO that's been around forever in the pharma space. So, so they had to file an amendment with the FDA on, on those changes. And they're, they're clicking through the 30 day um, review window right now. And as soon as that's completed, which will be done this week, then we'll be in a position to file RIND for the University of Florida. So that's that's um, like just about ready to we're about ready to hit the you know the go button on that to file the IND. Um, similar with University of Michigan, we've been in deep conversations with our team with Kevin Banky and Dan Claw now for months around that particular protocol and all the other pieces that go into play for that study, uh, including the psychotherapy manual, the investigative brochure, the informed consent, the imaging manual and other things. And, and we hope to file that probably in the next you know, 30 to 60 days. And then in both cases, be ready to start dosing patients you know, shortly thereafter. So, so those two are on the cusp of getting going. Um, we've got two other studies that I mentioned, um, one with a UC institution in Northern California, one with a UC institution in Southern California, um, looking at complex regional pain syndrome and phantom limb pain. The, the phantom limb pain study, assuming we get that collaboration put together, they've actually already filed the IND. We'll be making an amendment to upsize that trial to double the numbers of patients and add a placebo arm to make a really robust trial so that they can get a significant publication and we get more data. Um, so if we get that pulled off, um, we'll be essentially you know, making a simple IND amendment and uh, in the clinic in the next 30 to 60 days in that indication. The complex regional pain syndrome will take a little bit longer as we're just starting those conversations now in that clinical trial design. But um, the first three will get going probably in the fall. And then data from those, they're, um, except for the, the phantom limb study, which is a controlled trial, the others are open label. So we'll be getting data kind of on a patient by patient basis. We probably won't be announcing, you know, one patient at a time, but you know, probably every, you know, once we have three, you know, they're not cohorts necessarily, but once we have say three or four patients um, each, you know, from each one of these trials, we'll probably make some sort of announcement about that, I would guess. Um, so we'll, we'll be able to, to do that on a kind of open label basis. The, the, the phantom limb study has an interim analysis that we're, we're just determining the timing on that. And that probably is going to be probably going to be nine months uh, out from the start. So sometime you know, third quarter or so next year. So, but, but generally, you know, like timing for data for 8802, we should have, you know, in six to 12 months from now. And then we anticipate initiating our phase uh, 2B studies with TRIP 8803 sometime in the third quarter of next year. Those trials will probably take us a couple of years to generate data out of. Thank you. That answered my question. Um, 
Yeah, that's all my questions. Is there anything else on this topic uh, that you want people to know about? Anything you might have missed in this conversation or anything that you wish I'd asked you about? Um, I think that's actually really pretty good. I mean, the, the other thing I think of just, just, you know, you're asking around a little bit, but, um, you know, we're, we're also pretty intrigued with eating disorders. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, right. And, and there's, you know, and I think that frankly, you know, we haven't quite got to the point where we're sort of carving out obesity, but I think that there's, as we were sort of saying at the top of the conversation, I feel like there's a huge opportunity for us to kind of lean into that particular space. You know, we're, we're, we're looking at a couple of niche type areas uh, called, called hypothalamic obesity, where there's damage to the hypothalamus, typically because of removal of a brain tumor that then leads to this eating misbehavior, I'll call it. Um, binge eating is kind of, you know, definitely more on the addictive side. And then we're also looking at prouder Willie syndrome, which is genetically initiated, but ends up then being this, you know, kind of stuck brain problem where kids just aren't uh, eating properly. But each one of those, I think potentially could lead to this notion of trying to help patients like re rethink their relationship with, with food in a more appropriate way. And I feel like there's just a massive opportunity there that nobody has really, you know, kind of quite tapped into you know, yet, but we're, we're pretty excited about, you know, that, you know, possibility. And our first foray will be with the university of Florida in these two different areas. So I think that's the other thing I would just kind of underscore. And then, yeah, I mean, that's kind of it. I mean, otherwise, you know, our, our approach, like everybody in the team is a deep, you know, background in, in drug development, just to kind of full circle, you know, to close out with my background a little bit. Um, you know, I've been working in the biotech industry since 96. So like forever, 20, yeah. I don't know how many years, 25 years. My first company was with Genzyme out in Boston, a big successful company that got sold to Sanofi for about 22 billion, had a marketed drug that I worked on, uh, launching that in Asia. It was Orphan, you know, they had created on its own. And I worked in two different other areas um, in, in early new areas of, of research, gene therapy and immunotherapy were the two areas. Primarily I was working in cancer and, and cardiovascular disease. So I always, you know, worked in spaces where there can be just like a big push forward in terms of our knowledge. And also in terms of like benefit to patients. So that's a really big driver for me is just like, we got to be in a space where we can really help out people in a significant way. Um, so like the whole team is that way. And our whole focus is on, on, on kind of a more traditional ethical pharmaceutical drug development pathway for these chemistries. Um, we, we know that set and setting is really important, right? Like as I'm sure you picked up on and, and yeah, we know yeah. the psychotherapy piece is critical, but we're looking at this as like the, the, the whole path to really provide access to patients is, is not on the recreational side, but it's all, you know, through the FDA. And we think then that, that this can really unleash the total potential. So anyway, yeah, I mean, I'm excited. I think it's a really cool field. I think it's going to add yeah. a lot to the healthcare space. There's definitely a need for stuff like this. Um, well, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I appreciate uh, if you send over that pain study and the deck and the thing that Dan Claw wrote. That would be great. Thank you so much. Okay. I'll talk to you yeah. soon. All right. Thanks a lot. Good luck, man. Bye. That was an interview with Greg McKee, CEO of Trip Therapeutics. Now here's a discussion I had with Dr. Johannes Ramakers of Maastricht University. Thanks for listening. Great. Uh, you know, I've read about you before. I've read some of your research before, but uh, maybe we could just start with a little bit of your bio, your background, and your own work, just for accuracy's sake. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, I work as a, a professor in psychopharmacology at uh, Master University in the Netherlands. And uh, we have a uh, 
long tradition of studying the impact of uh, medicinal drugs, but also you know, drugs of abuse on human functions, to put it in, in the broadest uh, uh, context. And uh, more recently, we have been focusing a bit more on uh, psychedelic uh, compounds. And that uh, I, we actually started uh, about 20 years ago with our first controlled uh, studies with MDMA, for example, which is not psychedelic, but it's uh, within the same realm. But uh, so we are what we're, um, our expertise is basically on uh, control studies or placebo control studies that are being conducted in our laboratory, in which um, uh, usually healthy volunteers, but sometimes also patients are invited to take a dose or repeated doses of a compound. And then uh, depending on the research question, we would look at, uh, for example, human cognition, how does it change under the influence of, or mood. Um, in, the, in the case of this study that you're particularly interested in, the, the, one of the prime uh, interests was pain, the analgesic effects of psychedelics. And uh, the big advantage of uh, setups like that is that uh, you are in control. Uh, it's a placebo controlled. Um, you can actually keep the circumstances and the environment in which a drug is being taken uh, constant across treatment conditions where uh, the only thing that varies basically is the drug. So any change that you see in these within subject designs, as we call them, uh, are always related to the, yeah, the, the, the compound that somebody took relative to his or her performance, you know, doing the same task in the same environment, but during the placebo condition. So it's a very a strong design, basically, for which you uh, only need relatively few uh, participants, uh, even, uh, you know, to, to have like sufficient statistical power to, to detect even small differences that are being induced by a compound. So I think that that is our core uh, approach for studying um, the impact of, of compounds on, on human cognition primarily. Uh, but we've also done um, some uh, naturalistic observational studies, yeah. uh, which is great, particularly with some compounds um, that are less known. I mean, you have, I think you, you spoke to Marlene Uthauk uh, like last year or two years ago when we published our uh, paper on, uh, on the toad venom, uh, 5-MeO DMT. That, yeah. that was an example of, a, of an observational study and yeah. of a compound that is not so easy uh, to administer under controlled condition in a laboratory. Uh, at least back then. Now that has changed, but, but back then it was um, simply not available in and, and, and the quality uh, that would be requested by an IOB to be able to actually administer it, administer it in a controlled uh, setting. So, and uh, when we do these studies, we we basically come from two, three perspectives. One is uh, to see and, and 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 check whether any of these compounds are associated with uh, you know adverse events that might affect your day-to-day -day operations. Uh, the other perspective would be, you know, but are there, in, in, in contrast to that, are there any therapeutic benefits that you may expect from that same compound? And third is more fundamentally driven uh, and, and focusing on the mechanisms 
uh, the, the underlying biological uh, or neural mechanism that can explain uh, the, the, some of the findings that we see when, when we administer drugs to people and you know, relative to the behavior that, uh, that it produces. So the interface between you know, the pharmacology that, go, and that goes into your body and, and the behavioral outcome. Yeah, this microdosing study is so interesting because it seems like you got a really strong effect from it. it we um, did, actually. Uh, I was surprised, too, uh, because, I mean, uh, when we found that data, I, I did some comparisons with other studies that use the same pain paradigm. So keeping your hand in cold water, basically, for as long as you can, uh, which is a classic uh, paradigm that has been applied in, in many other studies as well, uh, including studies with opioids. And uh, basically, what we, what we, what I noticed um, that if if you compare the outcomes of the the um, analgesic effects or the effect size of the analgesic effect that we uh, recorded is actually comparable to some of the classic opioids that are currently being used to treat pain, right? Yeah. At least in healthy volunteer models, right? We did tested in healthy volunteer model. So I compared the, our effect size to the effect size of opioids in healthy volunteers. Yeah, I'm curious how this research would translate to people with different types of pain. I mean, uh, so I, I'm curious too. So we are we are currently working on, on a follow-up. Uh, and of course, uh, it, this, I mean, it's nice. It's a really nice result, but we need to demonstrate that this actually generalizes uh, to um, patient populations. And uh, so we're now working on a protocol uh, on that that we will submit soon. And the idea would be to uh, basically replicate this study, but in uh, patients that are suffering from uh, fibromyalgia, so a neuropathic pain, that uh, uh, it's, it's, well, it's a pretty common disorder, but there's not really a dedicated treatment for it. Yeah. Um, opioids are being prescribed, uh, cannabinoids are being prescribed. So we are very interested to see how uh, a psychedelic would actually fare uh, with those patients. That, that's very interesting because um, part of my story I'm doing is about um, trip therapeutics. Uh, they're also doing a fibromyalgia psychedelic study. Yeah. You're not associated with them, right? Because trip, trip therapeutics, I'd, actually, I don't even know them, I think. Uh, well, I'm not, I'm not surprised uh, that somebody's uh, looking at it. Uh, I mean, there, there, there have been some, some interesting uh, studies, that, but they were conducted uh, way back in, in, the, in the 60s. Uh, yeah. I'm not necessarily in pain patients, but um, some of those were conducted in... Uh, and people who were you know, dying from cancer and, and suffering lots of pain. And, um, and, and there are some studies that in which those patients were administered full doses of LSD, or really full doses. Uh, and and you know, uh, they reported efficacy in at least a subjective experience uh, of pain. Uh, but at the same time, there were also uh, participants in those studies that refused the second dose because they found the, the entire experience way too disturbing. Uh, I, I think so. And the, the great, uh, well, breaks from maybe not, but I think that the, the novelty of our study is that we could actually achieve um, analgesic effects with you know, low doses of LSD that as such 
do not produce uh, a psychedelic experience, not in a sense that you have vivid uh, hallucinations uh, and you know that would actually interfere with with your day-to-day operations right uh, right we administered five and 10 and 20 micrograms and the and 20 was the best right yeah and tw- so that's really uh, well people call this microdosing but these, these are not microdoses at all these are these are just low doses yeah but but 20 micrograms is really a noticeable dose in the sense that uh, colors may look a little bit brighter, uh, uh, but uh, anybody, I, I dare to say, that takes 20 micrograms can you know just operate their normal routine, right? Sit behind a computer or just have like a conversation like we have over Zoom, mm-hmm. and you wouldn't notice it. So it's uh, it is a, a, a dose that you can take um, safely in a normal uh, situation i think and that's why in terms of therapeutic it might it might actually be interesting uh because you you have the the analgesic effect but you don't have the psychedelic effects uh, of, of the compound and also it has a very um interesting uh, pharmacokinetic profile because lsd when it attaches to the 5-HE2A receptor it's kind of it's uh, it's kind of as it it, stack, it sticks to it for a pretty long time before it's yeah. being removed. So the the entire experience of an LSD trip, you know, can easily last twelve hours, uh, which you know you don't want for this particular types of uh, purposes. But if it's a low dose, it also lasts for 12, 12 hours. So basically, a single administration can give you therapeutic coverage for uh, for for at least half a day. Yeah. So it, it's unthinkable that if you, you know, that you only have like a single administration per day, right, to to treat pains. And maybe who knows? We haven't uh, looked at that yet. But but there is of course the whole story of uh, um, uh, neuroplasticity that is being generated by psychedelics. We don't know if that story also flies with uh, with such analgesic effects, but it cannot be excluded, and it should be studied, and it will be studied at some point. Whether some of these acute effects that we see actually, you know, linger on over time, even when people are not dosing themselves with a, with a, with a low dose. Yeah. Uh, so I spoke to Trip Therapeutics, and uh, they're they're actually trying psilocybin or a derivative yeah. of psilocybin for fibromyalgia. So maybe it's different. But their CEO told me that in their experience, the microdosing isn't as effective. Are, are, so the, I don't know if a macrodose is better. I, I, you know, I want to talk to you about whether if you can remove the hallucinogenic effects of the compound and that would maybe still work. Yeah. What do you think yeah. about that? Do you think microdosing or macrodosing is that is there a better route there? Or yeah, so uh, I, I don't. So I don't know why uh, the spokesperson of Trip Therapeutics thinks that a full dose is more effective than right. a low. I haven't seen the data for that, but maybe he has uh, some data that he hasn't shared with others. Uh, but I think uh, to give a full dose uh, of, of, of psilocybin or LSD, you know, if, it, if it's a single time administration, as in the treatment of depression or you know, repeated administration, that, that actually means that somebody has to come back to, uh, to, to go to the hospital, basically to, to get... 
a prescription on the supervision of a medical doctor. Uh, it's not like, you know, you, you have a strip of uh, psychedelics, take them home. And uh, so that, that's not going to happen. So it's really related then to, to clinics. And that, of course, is a big problem. So if you had a compound that does not, that, you know, that does the same, that has the analgesic effect, but doesn't produce the, halluc uh, the hallucinations, then I think uh, that that could be very uh, profitable uh, for the prescriber, but also for the patients. Yeah. And then, oh, there are, there are people actually looking at that same idea, right? Uh, because some, uh, there is a discussion ongoing in, in, in the entire uh, research community that the, 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 the psychedelic experience itself actually contributes to the therapeutic benefit. But this is particularly in the context of uh, treating a depression or treating a, uh, a post-traumatic stress disorder. But in the context of, of neurological pains, uh, I would think that uh, the, the, the psychedelic experience as such, right, uh, is not really needed uh, and, and in a way superfluent. So I think if you could develop a compound that just has, that is a 5-HU2 agonist, but that doesn't have the the psychedelic properties as such, then, then I think that would be a very interesting route. So what is the importance of 5-HT1A receptor antagonism here? Yeah. That was something yeah. that was in your paper that was, and that's really interesting. I mean, I know a lot about 2A agonism, but not much. Yeah, yeah. so, uh, I mean, it's a good question. And I don't think I have the full answer to that either. Uh, but we do, uh, most of the psychedelics are, uh, agonist of 5-HT2, but also 5-HT1A, uh, but, but the, uh, may actually differ quite a lot. In this case, um, it is uh, relevant that both of those receptors, and they are both being uh, triggered by LSD, are uh, located in um, uh, descending pathways, serotonergic pathways that uh, that descend from the raphian nucleus to the spinal cord. So they are actually involved in uh, in, in the, the processing uh, uh, of pain. And stimulation of that uh, sort of inhibits that signaling of pain uh, in your body. So, uh, and that's why you don't feel it. Uh, and that, uh, so uh, whether it's 5-HE to 1 uh, or 2, uh, which contributes the most, I wouldn't know. Okay. I think that in order to find out, you, you would need to do mechanistic studies in which uh, you, you know, first block 5-HE uh, to 1A and then administer LSD. And in the next uh, condition, you would do a blockade of 5-HE uh, to 2, and then administer LSD and so on and so on. Then, then you could actually... Uh, address that question. But that hasn't uh, been done yet, as far as I know. Are you familiar with Project Angie from MindMed? Yeah, Matthias Lichty, yeah. Yeah, uh, he's, a, he's associated with MindMed and also, MindMed's also searching or exploring using psychedelics for pain, but uh, do you have any thoughts on their project? Uh, I think uh, they, they, uh, they are looking at psilocybin or LSD, I'm not sure. LSD, I think. Okay. I'd have to double uh, check, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, my man is doing so many studies with Matthias Lichty that I'm losing track of it, to be honest. Yeah. Because uh, I'm a, I know they're doing studies with psilocybin and, uh, and, and, uh, and Parkinson patients and ADHD. Uh, they're looking at masculine and a whole lot of things. 
So, uh, yeah, I don't know exactly what the setup is, actually, uh, in their study. Maybe you can summarize it for me, and I, I'm, I, I can comment. Uh, you know, I'm not really sure on all the details. Like you said, he's good for Lichi. You know, he's getting a lot of work from MindMed. Um, but uh... I think he has, he must have shares with uh, MindMed because uh, actually, I, I mean, he told me that he's com- completely booked for the next, uh, I don't know, like five years or so. Yeah. Because of those studies that he's doing with MindMed. But, uh, but I mean, he, so Matthias, uh, I mean, is a very good researcher and a good lab. and uh, But he does a lot of the let's say phase one work uh, where uh, first you look at safety, but also at pharmacokinetics. Uh, so so uh, basically, you know, what does your body do to the drug once it enters? And uh, yeah. how, how quickly is it absorbed? And uh, how is it metabolized and elim- eliminated and so on? So I think that's where they start with all of these uh, uh, formulations because uh, mind matters, uh, I mean, not interested in the drug, but they need to produce their own formulation that they want to give in these uh, administer in these studies because it's the formulation that they probably will patent. They can't patent uh, LSD anymore. Yeah, and they can't. They can't even patent uh, the. Uh, uh, I think the the indication for for an, for pain because that has been described already uh, thirty, uh, well, fifty years ago. Yeah, but even even that is not not novel. So. Uh, it's a little bit comparable to compounds that, that are working on psilocybin and depression, right? And they, they are, most of the patent is also directed towards the formulation of psilocybin that they are, uh, they have produced and that making available to the clinics. Do you foresee this ever being prescribed for pain, LSD, uh, or? I think, uh, well, not as a first line treatment. I don't think so. Okay. Uh, I mean, uh, it is problematic in the sense that uh, it's unlikely that even if you give a microdose, right, like 20 micrograms, it's unlikely that uh, you would get a prescription from your uh, general physician, uh, you know, for, for like a month, okay, like a strip with 40 uh, or 31 uh, um, uh, LSD doses, because then there's always the risk that somebody takes them all, all, all at once. Yeah. So, uh, uh, and that is something that that uh, I think medical people don't like at all. Uh, yeah. The 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 risk of of the, the compound being abused in a way is the, uh, would be too high. So, and that means uh, that uh, yeah, you have to go to the clinic in order to receive the dose, and then you have to be under supervision uh, for a while. So uh, I don't see it right now. Uh, so I, I have more belief in, in a compound that actually needs to be developed uh, but there are being in the pipeline now that actually does have that analgesic effect but not the uh psychedelic effect and then you would really have like a new psychedelic uh, unless uh, we were able we would be able to show uh, that even if you take like a low dose or maybe even a full dose but if you give it on a single day in the in the in the uh, controlled environment in, in a medical setting that the effects that you measure actually prolong and keep on lingering even when you after after you went home, then it would become more feasible because that's also the way uh, psilocybin is being prescribed, right? Uh, and then I think it, uh, it 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 might become an option to actually stick to uh, to other field of psilocybin because then you can send people home uh, with at least uh, some remission for a longer time. Yeah, I was going to ask how long you think that these effects last you know if it's just 
I mean, maybe that would make it LSD good for surgery or something like that. You know, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Glove surgery. Uh, yeah, maybe. It depends on the, on the type of surgery, I would say. Of course. But, well, I mean, we did it. We did a, uh, a survey recently. I was still uh, still looking at, uh, at the data that came in. But basically inquiring about uh, uh, subjective experiences of uh, people all over the world with uh, treating their pains with uh, a psychedelic, either with a, with a low dose or a full dose. And um, many of them do report that they have of symptoms that uh, prolongs, right? That, that goes beyond uh, the, the, the day of administration, depending on what, what pains they, they are experiencing, but, but they differ from, uh, from neuropathic pains to headaches, uh, cluster, cluster headaches. But there, there's quite um, a big group that indicates, uh, A, that it is effective, but also that it is effective for a, a longer period of time. And that is that is way beyond the actual day of the administration. Uh, but this is, uh, yeah, I mean, this is anecdotal, almost uh, subjective. So that needs to be confirmed. But then again, we have learned a lot from uh, from users in the field in terms of what the potential of psychedelics can be. So uh, I, I have no a priori reason to not believe that. Yeah, yeah. Is there a connection between the brain and physical pain that psychedelics might be able to repair or something like that? And, and, and how much evidence is there for this? Yeah, I mean, uh, that, that I don't know. There is this neuroplasticity uh, story yeah. uh, that, that might, uh, I don't know, repair maybe some connections in these uh, descending serotonergic uh, pathways. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's really just speculation on my side and nobody has really uh, shown this. I mean, w- the other explanation that has been given uh, quite a lot, but it doesn't apply too much, I think, to, uh, to low doses, is that uh, the subjective analgesic effects are being caused by the fact that you're, that you ha- that you're experiencing LSD symptoms in a way, so that, that the attention is kind of uh, re- reallocated to, to, I don't know, whatever it is that you see during your... Uh, psychedelic experience so if you if you focus uh, on something else then you, typically you would you would not feel your pain as much as if you were to focus on your pain right yeah that that is a well-known mechanism but uh, i think and that could be true for higher doses of uh, a psychedelic but it's less likely i think uh, with when giving low doses of lsd because you really don't have too much of that psychedelic experience yeah, so I, I, are you interested in anything like non-hallucinogenic, such as 2-bromo-LSD or...? Yeah, I think that uh, I'm certainly interested in that. Uh, that has been um, mentioned uh, quite a lot as, a, as an interesting compound. Uh, but we haven't looked at it, but it would certainly be interesting. I guess, uh, yeah, what, uh, what questions do you still want to answer? Well, so uh, first of all, I want to find out whether this, the, the effect that we found in healthy volunteers can be replicated in a patient population. So, and if you can, uh, I mean, that, that clearly increases the, the value of a finding like that. And, it's, and the second question really is uh, on uh, how long that effect really uh, prevails and how much, 
how often you would need to repeat a, a dosing session like this in order to um, yeah keep keep the relief of symptoms uh, constant over time yeah i think th these are the two main questions at the moment and that would uh, give us some better uh, idea on the feasibility of using these compounds you know in in in, in clinical practice and you mentioned you're going to submit a protocol soon do you have a timeline for that perhaps i know that's hard to answer but no, the time, no, it's uh, uh, before the end of this year, it should be uh, submitted uh, and hopefully also uh, evaluated by the IRB. So our goal is to start a study uh, in the beginning of next year. Okay. I, um, I guess that's it. Is there any other things on this topic that uh, you want people to know about? Anything that we might have missed in this conversation that you wanted me to ask you about? Oh, I think you covered most of it. Uh, so, so you're working on a general story, I suppose? Of yeah. Um, okay. I'm looking at all these different companies that are exploring treating psychedelics or tr treating pain with psychedelics. Yeah. Uh, but just also the evidence. I'm going to go into the history, uh, mm -hmm. you know, because there, there's a lot of really old studies like you cited, and it's, it's fascinating research, I think. I think there's a lot to oh. learn about how the brain processes pain and how that manifests um yeah yeah so that is true so i mean there, there's uh i mean all of the companies that you speak to that they, they are i mean there's nothing wrong with it and not, not at all but but they are focusing on the clinical outcomes right they're interested yeah. in drug development right so they 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 spend their money on showing that uh it is safe and and, and efficacious uh in patients but indeed, as you mentioned, the, the, uh, there is a lack of fundam fundamental studies that are really uh, trying to explain and understand how uh, psychedelics actually do interfere with the, with the signaling and the processing of pain. Yeah, there are no studies actually uh, at the moment. Uh, I mean, basically also because there is a lack of funding because these studies are expansive and uh, that would not be funded by 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 investors or, or uh, biotech companies because that's not their main interest they right they want to focus on a clinical outcomes what else are you working on do you have anything coming up or anything interesting i i really appreciate the research coming out of your university yeah uh well so we're working on 5meo dmt we're doing control studies with 5meo dmt uh, that so that could be interesting for you to report on, but that that you you will have to wait uh, until next year, I think early next year or so. Interesting, because we uh, we have done studies uh, to show. Uh, so basically, that's kind of a follow up on on the toad studies that we've done. So uh, we uh, I mean we took it uh, took it to our lab and we did control studies and also volunteers basically to see you know is it safe. And uh, and what 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 actually is the dose that you need to give somebody uh, uh, a full blown psychedelic experience that people can still go through uh, uh, in a safe uh, manner, right? And after that, uh, after we had all of that information, we took that uh, uh, and with us and designed to study in, in treatment uh, resistant in patients with treatment resistant depression. And that, that is now ongoing, and uh, I can't say anything about it right now, but, but next year, probably this data will be out and open. Yeah. But that would, that would be the very first study with uh, 5 me DMT ever uh, to look at uh, the patient population. So that would really be interesting. That's exciting. Uh, yeah. Send me any information you have on that when you have it. I'd yeah. love to write about that. 
There was yeah. some news story the other day, some psychedelic company. I can email you the details because I can't remember the name. Uh, but they are making derivatives, analogs of uh, DMT and 5-MeO DMT. Yeah. There's a lot of interesting stuff happening in this space. Yeah. I'm always happy to revisit it because it's... Yeah, I think that uh, there's this guy, uh, Dave, David Olson, I think, uh, who's, who's, mm-hmm. is, is producing a lot of these analogs. Basically, with the idea uh, to produce uh, a psychedelic that is efficacious in treating an indication, but does not produce that psychedelic experience as such. Yeah. So he's really trying to uh, uh, create psychedelics without the psychedelic uh, uh, effect. And he, he actually published a paper on that on, uh, on the compound in Nature, uh, I think, like a few months ago. Yeah, yeah. It's an ibogaine analog, I think. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting <laughs> stuff. I, I, I'm just a journalist, not an expert. So, like, I, I have no idea if the hallucinations are really that important to the therapeutic effect of uh you know but yeah. well as i said i think it actually depends uh quite a lot on the uh, on the, on the indication uh, yeah. I, I don't think it's going to matter a lot for treating uh, pain i don't see how the psychedelic experience as such could contribute to the therapeutic effect and also there are compounds uh, uh, for example like five meter dmt uh, people usually don't remember what happened yeah uh, yeah, uh, so that's not, uh, there, there's not a whole lot to integrate uh, of that actual experience if you have uh, no memory of what happened. The only example I can think of of a type of pain that would benefit from a psychedelic experience is phantom limb pain. Yeah. That, that's an interesting one as well. Um, yeah. But I, I think you're right. Yeah. And, you know, I've talked to scientists and they're like, we've given non hallucinogenic drugs to these rats and they show less signs of depression it's like the rat doesn't have consciousness in the same sense as humans do mm. uh, like and introspection it can't like integrate its experience so if it has i don't know it's interesting debate there, there, is, I, there is this great story i mean you know uh, there, there's an american soldier i forgot his name i can find out if i want to uh but he got he got uh, badly injured i think in uh, the first goal for so and he lost uh, two legs, I think, one arm and uh, a part of his uh, remaining arm. And he uh, suffered from phantom pains uh, terribly. Yeah. And there was nothing uh, that uh, that uh, he could be cured. With. Nothing worked. Uh, you got whopping doses of opioids and whatever was there, and nothing worked. And he wrote a book about it. And then they gave him, as a last resort, they uh, turned to ketamine. And they gave him uh, uh, doses uh, so high that nobody, at least that people know, have ever uh, been uh, given to. And he, he, uh, I think he remained in a coma for about three to four days on ketamine. Wow. But but it, uh, but it was worthwhile. <laughs> so, in the sense that you know, a lot of his pains were actually gone. Uh, because of ketamine and ketamine is a well-known uh, analgesic drug by the way and that's that's, being, that's why what is being used but yeah. they gave it him in such high doses that he that he went into a coma for days and now uh, he's uh, i mean he has all of these uh, artificial limbs now and he's uh, like a happy uh, dad uh, with his family enjoying life it's really interesting that reminds me of another question i wanted to ask um 
if there's maybe a possibility that, you know, uh, LSD and psilocybin, you know, uh, maybe also target opioid receptors. Um, I yeah. know salvia is a kappa opioid receptor agonist. True. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. But I don't, I don't know. Be. I'd have to look that up. I mean, they, 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 there may be some small affinities, uh, but I think, at, uh, I don't think it's the really the major route. Uh, yeah, but I don't know. So it could be, maybe. I think, but the the strongest affinities really are for the serotonergic receptors and yeah, not yeah. so much for anything else. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's been great talking to you and I, I look forward to reading more of your research. Yeah, okay, great, thanks. Thanks for listening to Narcotica, an independent production by Christopher Moraff, Zachary Siegel, and Troy Farah. I'm your co-producer, Garrett Farah. Our theme music is by Glass Boy. Jenny Shea is the voice of Narcotica. And additional music is by Robert John. You can follow us on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. These are the best ways for you to tell us that we suck. But if we don't suck, and you think we're cool, consider supporting us on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash narcotica. Be sure to give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts, like SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, you name it. That's everything, guys. Have a nice week.